Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. Well, my friends, it appears we have made it more or less intact to the day we've all been waiting for. A few of us, eagerly and excitedly, more of us, anxiously and agitatedly, and some of us, fretfully and fearfully, bracing for the beginning of the end of American democracy as we know it. Yes, Election Day 2022 is finally, at last, upon us. And what better way to pass some of the time as we wait for the results to start rolling in, then spending an hour or so in the company of my friend Joe Scarborough, a former Republican congressman from Florida, current independent and fierce critic of the Trumpified GOP, which in this podcast he refers to as, quote, irredeemable, and of course, the co-host, alongside his vastly better half, Mika Brzezinski, of the four sunrise hours of overnight and breaking news, insider analysis, heavyweight punditry, and routine spasms of pop culture pontification known as Morning Joe. I caught up with Joe Scarborough on Sunday afternoon, with him in New York City and me in Denver, Colorado, where, a few hours earlier, an ambitious travel schedule on behalf of my Showtime series, The Circus, that would have taken me to Arizona, California, Virginia, Maryland, and possibly Pennsylvania in the final 48 hours of the home stretch, had been blown up when I tested positive for COVID, a situation I mentioned both as an abject bid for sympathy from my listeners and an explanation as to why some, maybe all, of my questions for Joe were a bit less sharp and a bit more foggy than usual. Thankfully, my many shortcomings as an interlocutor did not phase my guest even a little bit, as you'll hear in the course of the next hour, as Joe holds forth as only Joe can on a wide variety of topics, including the messaging he believes the Democrats would have been well-served by during this election season and would be wise to put forward in the future. What does the former right-wing Republican freak think Democrats need to do? Well, this is what you need to do. Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> they need to do what Josh Shapiro did. You can do two things at once. They need to be pro-small business. They need to be aggressively small business. They need, to, they need to do whatever they can to help small business owners and entrepreneurs, right? And at the same time, they can demand justice, social justice, uh, economic justice. Uh, they, they, they can hold multinational corporations accountable. They can make sure that billionaires actually pay their fair share. They can make sure that this massive wealth uh, disparity uh, that has grown, not because the poor have gotten poor, but because the rich have gotten so much richer, uh, is, is, is taken care of in a way that's far more effective than Richie Neal's uh, uh, tax plan that came out of the Ways and Means Committee that didn't touch carried interest, uh, that, that again focused on taxing income instead of taxing capital taxing people who actually work their asses off instead of taxing people who just shuffle paper around and, and have to pay a much lower tax rate. You will not be surprised to learn that Joe was equally full of piss and vinegar when it came to pretty much every topic that I broached with him, from Barack Obama's closing arguments on behalf of his party to the all but inevitable prospect of Donald Trump entering the fray to lead his party in 2024, and from Joe's diagnosis of the ailments that he sees afflicting today's Democrats— a tendency towards excessive wokeness, to those that he sees as destroying the GOP, a proclivity for unrepentant fascism. So, as you get your game face on, ahead of what is likely to be a very long election night, 
a night so long, in fact, that it could stretch well into Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or until Thanksgiving for all we know. Kick back with me and the one and only Joe Scarborough as we take a tour to horizon of American politics in this, the year of our Lord, 2022. A moment when any honest view of our current national predicament evokes images at once vivid and terrifying of unrelenting hell and high water. So today, I appeal to all Americans, regardless of party, to meet this moment of national and generational importance. We must vote, knowing what's at stake and not just the policy of the moment, but institutions that have held us together as we sought a more perfect union are also at stake. We must vote knowing who we have been, what we're at risk of becoming, Look, my fellow Americans, the old expression, freedom is not free. It requires constant vigilance. From the very beginning, nothing has been guaranteed about democracy in America. Every generation has had to defend it, protect it, preserve it, choose it. For that's what democracy is. So that was Joe Biden uh, giving his kind of closing argument on behalf of not just his party, but democracy itself uh, in a, what was surprised a lot of people, a nationally televised address uh, last week uh, from Washington, D.C. in Union Station where he uh, spoke. Uh, and uh, we're here to talk about uh, the, the final days of this home stretch uh, before the midterm elections finally uh, we finally get the results with Joe Scarborough. Um, we're, we're here. Uh, it's Sunday afternoon. Uh, November 6th, and that means we're just about 48 hours away before Election Day kicks in. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, I'm uh, Joe, I told you before, I'm, I'm, I'm out here in Denver. I'm stuck here with yeah. my case of COVID. And you're, where are you now right now? You're, you're in, in New York? New York. I'm in the city. Right. So you're in New York City. And, uh, and you know, look, we're, we're, the, the final polling has kind of come in over the course of uh, today. We see the final, this final NBC news poll that, uh, that surprised a lot of people, right. I think, you know, looking at, the generic ballot, suddenly it's even. 48, 40, 47, 48, 47, 48, uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, sort of toe-to-toe. Uh, no one with, yeah. a, with a real uh, demonstrable lead uh, in the generic ballot of either likely voters or registered voters. Um, and, you know, we have talked a lot on your show, Joe, over the last couple weeks about, uh, last few weeks, really, last few months, about the kind of choose-your-own-adventure quality uh, of the polling that we've seen. But you've made the right. point over and over again that two things are basically true. One is that all these races... Are tightening, uh, especially in the Senate races. They're all they've all tightened. Uh, they've become incredibly unpredictable. We don't really know what's going to happen. It doesn't really feel like a wave year uh, in the way that we've traditionally defined wave years, like 1994, yeah. 2010. Uh, so I guess my question for you, as you sit here today on this Sunday afternoon, is looking at all the the last of the reliable, or however reliable it turns out to be, the last of the data that we're going to look at that's worth looking at. Uh, from around the country uh, in all this polling, and the 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 so the empirical data and the anecdotal evidence, everything that comes into your purview. Um, what's your what's your kind of overview from the top level of where things stand as we head into these midterm elections? You know, it used to be uh, before twenty twenty, uh, I could predict with some certainty and, and felt pretty confident about it. The polls were so horribly off in twenty twenty. Uh, and in 2016, 
It's just really hard to say. I think my, my, my question is, if I'm a pollster and I have under and, and I've uh, underscored populists, Republican populists, Trump supporters uh, for the past several cycles, you know, I'm asking myself, are those guys trying to correct it right now? Um, certainly, if you look at history, if you look at the trend lines, uh, it should be a massive Republican night in both the House and uh, I would say even in the Senate. But just for me, I'm not sure. You know, like, I, I, think, I think it's very possible that Democrats win in Pennsylvania with Fetterman. Democrats uh, win in Arizona. Uh, Democrats win ultimately in Georgia. Uh, and they lose New York. They, they lose a governorship in New York. They get routed uh, in, they get routed in the House. A former Republican uh, wins uh, the mayoral ship of Los Angeles, which I think is actually going to happen. Um, so it's hard to say. I will say this, John, and I'd be really curious. You know, I don't get out much. Um, <laughs> I, I live. I live in my little little condo, and Meek and I don't get out much. We've gotten out over the past three weeks an awful lot. For I went out to L.A. to visit my boys, um, and I'm in New York now, uh, getting ready to do the show this week. Uh, and also, uh, meet one of Mika's daughters ran the New York Marathon today. That's very wow. cool. Wow! I, I can't, I can't many, even. I can't how, even walk downstairs. I was going to say, mean, how many marathons have you run in your life, Jeff? <laughs> I, I know the answer I to that, Ray. Right? Somewhere between zero and zero. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, from L.A. to New York to Connecticut to Florida, all I see is Republican ads kicking the ever living shit out of Democratic. Uh, candidates. I, I see, you know, watched Alabama last night, um, the New York media market. I saw Lee Zeldin, one ad after another ad after another ad talking about crime. I know progressives hate to hear it, but that just may be an effective message in New York City. Right. Uh, the same thing with Los Angeles. Man, Katie Porter, who I, I personally, I think she's pretty damn great congresswoman. Um, one horrible ad after another horrible, again, in LA, watching an NFL football game. Where's this money coming from? And they are blanketing LA with attacks on a congresswoman. Uh, and and uh, wherever I go, I'm seeing a lot of Republican attack ads and not a lot of Democratic responses. So that 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 certainly should be a concern to Democrats. But again, overall, I, I think. I think we could have. I think we could have a split decision on election night. I don't mean to frustrate people, but I, I want to yeah. go back to what we said on the show the other day. Let's say the polls are two points off in one direction, which is yeah. very possible. Yeah. If it's two points off in the Republican direction, man, it's going to be a huge night for Republicans. Right. Yeah. If it's two points off in the Democrats' direction, Democrats are going to be celebrating and and uh, you know thinking they dodged they dodged a, a, a total bloodbath. It's interesting. I did a I did an interview on Friday with Tom Bonnier, the guy who runs Target Smart, Democrat, yeah. partisan, knows a lot about data, and Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report for the Circus. Um, and then I talked to Michael Bennett last night and John Hickenlooper at this event in Denver. But like you know, Michael Bennett ran in tw in twenty ten and in, in Colorado, very purple state. He won yeah. here uh, against the tide. He was the head of the DSCC in twenty fourteen, which was a terrible year for Democrats at the Senate yeah. level. 
Um, and then he ran in 2016 here when Trump was very strong in Colorado, as you'll recall, and he, he survived then too. And he said to me, he's like, I've seen wave years. Like, this is not, doesn't feel that way here. A lot of people thought I was going to get washed away uh, a little while ago. A couple of Republican polls had, a, you know, a two-point race. And now, like, he's pretty confident. He's, and he's been fighting. He's been out yeah. making the economic argument. Um, so he's like, it doesn't really feel like that. And then I t- with the Bonnier and, 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 uh, and Wasserman interviews, it was really fascinating. You, you started, you touched on an element of it that I found fascinating. Right? One was, how weird a year is it when you could have the Democratic governor of New York gets beat and a Democrat g- gets elected as governor of Oklahoma? That's, yeah. not, not a, that's not a normal year. That's not how we've come to think about these years as being, partly because a lot of these midterm years going back the last few Blue yeah. wave in 2018, red yeah. wave in 2014. Like we're we used to big, big like kind of uh, uh, a very clear, very homogenous, very obvious wave where one party has the decisive advantage on issues and wins at every level. That's become we become acculturated that as the right. and a nationalized elections. And both these guys were sort of saying, number one, that it's that you have these these pockets where. Democrats could win the governorship of Kansas, the governorship of, of Oklahoma. A Republican could be the governor of Oregon, and a Republican right. could become the governor of, of New York. You know, Democrats are on defense in congressional districts in California, Massachusetts, uh, New York. Uh, but but Democrats are actually kind of overperforming in a lot of congressional districts in the middle of the country where there have been big abortion debates where, where people have been riled right. by that issue. It's just, it's, we're not used to it, right? Like the idea right. that we could go back to, we like we could get away from waves and go back to complicated, non-nationalized, ticket splitting, all that stuff that you and I grew up with. I mean, there was all that. that was, yeah. we, didn't have, we didn't have midterm elections like this when we were growing up. But if, it, it, and it's hard for people to get it through their head that that might be the outcome, a very mixed outcome um, uh, on election day or in the, however many days it takes afterwards. It, it, it takes afterwards to get a final result. But that could be where we end up, where, you know, everybody's picking at the entrails and kind of pointing to the the, the examples that, that make the case that they had a great night, but it's not a night where it's like, obviously, big night for Republicans or big night for Democrats. It'd be frustrating to a lot of people in this polarized world, but it could be that's where we end up. Well, it could be. And it, it could be very frustrating for, for Democrats right now, there's a debate, a big internal debate about crime, about inflation. Uh, if you listen to most uh, most pundits, conventional wisdom is they've blown it on crime. They've blown it on inflation. Okay, maybe they have. I think they should have talked about both of those issues a lot more than they have. But what happens if Fetterman wins in Pennsylvania and Herschel uh, loses in Georgia? What, what happens if Hochul holds on and perhaps the next uh, superstar um, in, in Democratic politics, uh, Josh Shapiro, uh, wins by 12, 14 points in a swing state like Pennsylvania. What if, you know, you know what if Gretchen Whitmer holds on? Um, you know, Democrats could, like you said, Democrats could be looking around the map and, and could have quite a few wins. Now, of course, if they're all wiped out, then there's going to be soul searching and People are going to say that the Democrats blew it in this way or that. But, you know, I, I, I've been listening to a couple of podcasts this past weekend for center right uh, uh, pundits, um, sort of the, the, the fiercest of the anti, anti-Trump pundits. And, you know, they're already saying the Democrats are going to get wiped out. And, of course, they don't like Donald Trump. But uh, this isn't really a battle for democracy uh, that's irresponsible and reckless to say that this is a battle for 
democracy. This is a democratic election, so how could it be a battle for democracy? And then somebody will say, you know, maybe Kerry Lake says one or two bad things. But, <laughs> you know, it's not really a battle for democracy because she's elected democratically. Um, I, think there, I think there are enough people in the suburbs of Atlanta. I think there are enough people in the suburbs of Dallas. I think there are enough people uh, in suburbs across the country. I think there are enough uh, 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 people who fit into the demographic of, of former Republicans who are voting more Democratic now, more highly educated, uh, more affluent uh, uh, former Republicans uh, that, that make this all very interesting. I think on the other side, and I've got to say the demographic I'm most interested in, Hispanics. Yeah. Because I just want to say this, John. I have long believed, and I said it as a Republican, so, so I wasn't taking money from George Soros, uh, but George W. Bush was saying it in 98, and Jeb was saying it in 98, and Karl Rove was saying it in 98 as a warning to us Republicans. Demographics is destiny. You guys, I remember Karl Rove telling us in 98, 99, yeah, when he came to get ready, get us all ready for Bush running. He said, you guys get it right with Hispanics, are you gonna be wiped out? Right. And so we've been hearing now over the past year that the Democrats are just getting absolutely routed. It's historic. Uh, more Hispanics are breaking for Republicans than ever before. I think I went back, I think I went back and saw, what did Trump get, 33, maybe 30, 34% of the Hispanic vote? I remember when Mitt Romney got 28 or 29%. The guy was vilified and, and said, well, yeah, the guy, worst ever. And people were talking about how George W. Bush got 44%. I'm going to be looking at this Hispanic vote, um, and I'm going to see, I really want to see, is there enough of a significant break that 40% of Hispanics are voting for Republican candidates? If so, we've got a story, and that is a massive shift. If it's still around 32, 33, 34%, that's not really that much of a shift of than what it used to be with the Republicans and Democrats. So, uh, but but there's no doubt there things are changing. You're seeing some Hispanics who breaking more Republican. You're seeing former Republicans in suburbs uh, going to the Democratic Party. I think maybe that's why right now when you talk to candidates across the country, it's not it, it's not as as clear as as it may have been over the past 10, 15 years. Well, the Repo I mean, look, the Hispanic thing is super fascinating, right? Because, I mean, the, the, the thing that, that no one has yet given me a satisfactory answer to is you, you, you're rightly recalling the, the Bush era where, you know, Carl would say often, you know, the, on the other side, if you don't get right with Hispanics, you're going to get screwed, you're, you're done. Yeah. But on the, on the positive side, his thing was always, you know, if, if Republicans can manage to win 40, 50% of the Hispanic vote, they could be in, in power forever. Forever, you know, that's right? Like, that's, you know, and that was, the, the, that was part of, I think, George Bush, George W. Bush was genuinely humane when it came to immigration policy for principled reasons, but also the politics of it helped him to, to dominate uh, uh, in his two elections in, in Texas as governor. And then he had, he got 40, 42% of Hispanics or some, some number in that, in the, in the low 40s when he ran for re-election in 2004. And so yeah. it looked like all that was like on, you know, on, on track for Republicans. Then, yeah. you know, they fell off at Obama. The Obama coalition came, came to be. The, 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 and, and you saw, as you said, Romney trashed for, for his performance with Hispanics in 2012. So now we get to Trump, you know? 
mm-hmm. who comes down the escalator and says, you know, rapists and drug dealers and all that. They're bringing crime. They're bringing rape. They're bringing drugs. And I guess there are maybe a few decent ones in there. He attacks Hispanics. He talks about building the wall. He does all that stuff. He gets a, a sort of surprising number of Hispanic votes in 2016. And then he, he gets more in 2020. Trump right. increases his share between 2016 and 2020. To me, right. that's the great paradox because as we sit here right now, there's no less George W. Bushian a Republican on Hispanic, uh, on the on dealing with Latinos and and the, and the associated policy issues than than Donald Trump. And yet yeah. now, as we sit here, you know, you've got Myra Flores and you've got all these, you know, these 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 impressive Hispanic. Uh, uh, female candidates running for the House in places like South Texas. Uh, and you've got the problems that, that Cortez Masto's having in, in Nevada where Adam Laxalt, we're not sure the polling there is horrible, but it's possible Adam Laxalt's going to get 40% of the Hispanic vote in, in Nevada. Yeah. You know, it, 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 what, what doesn't make sense to me is how it is that Republicans are stronger with Hispanics in the era of Trump or the post-Trump era than they were before that's like, I still don't quite get that part. Like, what's the, I mean, you can say the Democrats have failed by lumping all Hispanics together, by, right. by, by, by being, by letting the border get out of control, you know, that, that, that a lot of Hispanics feel that way too, like that the, the border is a real crisis and that Democrats aren't doing enough about it. But I, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that, the, that the, the way that the Republican Party currently messages and that well, a party that's still defined to a large extent by Donald Trump, that that party is gaining ground with Hispanics. I, I find that like a, that to me is a paradox that I can't really un, unravel, unravel. At least yeah, I've been able to unravel it so far. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it was a paradox for me as well. Uh, I will say, though, a lot of Biden people in the lead up to the election were talking about men, men especially breaking uh, for Trump. And they talked about, you know, they like this, the, the, the strong leader. They like the, the strong man thing. It's, it, it was showing up in their... Their polls, we had a one poll after another poll after another poll, and it was really vexing for them as well because Donald Trump, after all, did call Hispanics breeders. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, it, and and um, so that's part of it. I think another part of it. David Shore, uh, after the 2020 election, was was talking an awful lot about this, and um, he talked about how the white uh, woke, the ruling class of of the Democratic Party, was too woke. Um, even on, on, on almost every issue for, for uh, a lot of Hispanics and a lot of black voters, uh, even on racial justice. And I will say the thing that, I, that I've, I've always said about Democrats, and I, I used to say it as a criticism when I was a Republican, is, first of all, like you said, they tried to lump all Hispanics uh, into one group. Uh, and, and that was always a massive mistake. Also, though, Secondly, they all, it always seemed that Democrats used to cynically believe uh, that, um, that Hispanic, if you were Hispanic, you were for illegal immigration. If you were right. Hispanic, you didn't care how chaotic it got at the southern border. That's just not the case. I've also been hearing now over the past couple of weeks, in the last few weeks, from a, a couple of Hispanic legislators and leaders, um, I've also heard something else that's very interesting, and that is that... It's showing up in polling that Hispanics, uh, especially immigrants to the country uh, who, who have been here for a few years, are deeply patriotic. And they yeah. see the Republican Party as more patriotic. They see the Democratic Party as a party that is constantly questioning America's greatness, tearing down America. I'm not saying this. I'm, all I'm saying is what's showing up in a lot of polls. Yeah. 
and they see the Republican Party as a sort of USA party, and they believe this is a great country. I mean, if you're coming from Honduras, if you're coming from Venezuela, you come to the United States of America, you're probably going to be more willing to support the, the, the party that is the most uh, pro-USA, pro-capitalist, pro-free market, pro-everything that Venezuela uh, was not. It's not. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's also this. Look, I mean, there's also the fact is like that. With one of the truths is that a lot of Hispanics uh, of, of varying types, and again, not lumping them all into one group, but you know, there's a lot of just deep social conservatism among those groups. A lot of anti-abortion yeah. feeling. A lot of very yeah. strong attachments to the Catholic Church. Uh, very strongly uh, uh, anti-gay marriage. Very strongly, you know, cult, like genuine cultural conservatives at a, at a very yeah. deep level. And so it's like part of what's happening is they're just appealing to their understanding that that it's not just that they're not homogenous in the sense that it's different if your descendants are from Cuba versus Mexico versus Venezuela versus Puerto Rico versus Dominican Republic versus what right. all those things, but also that there is. You know, this is not an, an, a, a liberal, like at core, these are not left, they're not left, it's not a lefty when it comes no, to social, not, social and cultural not issues. progressive, right? Right, right. Then that's a kind of, a, it's a become a way to kind of cleave off some of those, uh, some of those, uh, some of those voters. And I mean, and, a lot of the, a lot uh, of those Hispanics, a lot of these young, these Hispanics who are, who are coming, who are breaking through in the Republican Party are very conservative. They're like as conservative as Trump or more, but they right. just happen to, they happen to be brown skinned. And in a lot of cases, they're brown-skinned and female. And, you know, you look at them and you say, okay, you know, the, the Myra Flores is a good example. You know, you look at her and go, she's as right-wing as Trump, but it's just very different when someone is that right-wing, but they're, but they're brown-skinned and female, that, like, the carrier of the message really changes the way the message lands when it's... Uh, when, oh, when yeah. It's, when, when, yeah that. And, and again, if, you have a, if you're from Venezuela, if you've immigrated from uh, Venezuela or you're a refugee from Venezuela or you're a refugee from Cuba or you're a refugee from Nicaragua... Uh, and, and a refugee from a communist country, and you come here, man, you've got, you've got the greatest story about why the United States works and why the United States, you know, right. how bad things were and why people should celebrate being American. I will say, I think Democrats are going to get past it, but, you know, over the past, you know, Democrats have not been really good at, um, at embracing symbols that Republicans use shamelessly. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can embrace symbols uh, without using them shamelessly. Uh, you, can, you can talk about the military and how proud you are of the military and talk about how offended you are that Josh Hawley and other insurrectionists are constantly attacking the military. Why, damn it, I am not going to sit here, sit back and watch you denigrate the men and women of the United States Armed Forces. You know, it's the same thing with faith. I know a lot of Democrats are, you know, have, have a deep, deep faith. Um, it's something that, that many have not felt as comfortable talking about on the campaign trail in the past, just for cultural reasons. I think it's changing. I think that's something they've got to get more comfortable with if, in fact, uh, it comes from their heart. Uh, I, and and I, I think it's time for Democrats to stop being so flat-footed and uh, start, start being far more aggressive and not ceding uh, God, country, flag, uh, patriotism, the United States military to the Republicans, uh, which which uh, the Rep Republicans have shamelessly used all these years. And now, of course, the great irony of that is they're the ones trashing the military. They're the ones trashing the FBI. They're the ones trashing the intel community. They're the ones trashing the institutions that are actually holding this country up. Uh, they're the ones that are acting unpatriotic. They're the ones who only love America if they won the last election. If they didn't win the last election, suddenly... Uh, you know, you listen to a Donald Trump speech. All they do is talk about how horrific the the, the United States is. It's it, it's 
It's not patriotic. It's, uh, in fact, some might even say that's anti-American. Uh, and I think Democrats have to get a lot more aggressive on that front. It's uh, for sure. And, and I'd, I'd say just come back to our midterm question here. You know, again, it's really striking to see these uh, these last polls come. There have been so much... Um, there's you know so much question about whether Republicans are really on the on the been on offense, and you point out they're definitely Republicans are on offense when it comes to advertising spending. You see Republican ads everywhere you go. Democrats seem to be uh, not, not seem to be on the airwaves as much. But you see these last polls, NBC poll, a lot of consistent polling that basically has the the country really split. And you think about one of the things just to go to tie these two things together, you know. Th- in the House, right, where we all assume that Republicans are going to take control of the House on Tuesday, uh, the question is by how by how many, like what would constitute, I mean, a big night for Republicans would be maybe, you know, they get, they get a net 20 or 30 seats. Used to right. be, you know, we used to live in a world where you could get 60, you know, right. a 60. That's like almost impossible now. So many, so, so many fewer competitive districts. Uh, and then you've got this question of, of one of the things that's really helped Republicans in those competitive districts. Um, I note this. Uh, for you and ask you what you think about this as we think about the Hispanic question. Uh, the, the, the most diverse house uh, among Republicans, the most diverse Republican class of challengers in history, uh, at a time, again, in the era of Trump and, and genuinely the era of white supremacy, white grievance, white nationalism, right. uh, anti-Semitism, all the stuff that the far right's doing, which is all very, very white, you know, it's <laughs> very white. It's still the case. And when you look at the house caucus of the Republicans, that one that's going to take control uh, probably after, uh, after election day, which just looks like a bunch of fat white guys. But their, their class of, of challengers, 80 women, 32 Latinos, 28 black, 13 Asian. And, and a lot of them are military veterans. A lot of them are, they, you look at these suburban districts where a lot of these fights are happening, where Abigail Spanberger or Elisa Slotkin or whoever, uh, Elaine Luria, where they're fighting these battles, Katie Porter. A lot of these, a lot of these races are Republicans fielded not Trumpy candidates, or at least candidates don't look like Trump. Again, right. some of them very conservative, but again, 80, 80 women, 32 Latinas, 28 black, 13 Asian. That's not like the image that most people have in their head of what the Republican Party at the House level looks like in the era of Trump. But yeah. that's, that's, those are the ones that are out there running uh, in 2022. I mean, they are. And, and it's, it's very interesting um, right now, when you look at, at, at this race, um, there are two different fact patterns that, that I think uh, Democrats and Republicans look at. Um, and and there, there, there are two different things that, that we're, we're concerned with. I, you know, John, I, I'm trying to figure out a polite way to say this, but, um, you know, on our show every day, we talk about January the 6th. Yeah. On, our show, on our show every day. We talk about the dangers to democracy. We talk about election deniers. We talk about people uh, that 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 have violated the law uh, in, in office. We talk about uh, co- the, the breaching of constitutional norms. Those things matter to me. I think they matter to you. I think they matter to most of our friends. And 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 that's whether formerly pre-Trump we were conservative Republicans or pre- I don't know if you would consider yourself a progressive, but my progressive friends. Uh, and, and so there are a group of us who are very, very concerned about this. You go around the country, there are a lot of people that just don't give a damn. It's just, they don't, that's, you know, uh, that's just it's Washington nonsense. I'm more worried about gas prices. I'm more worried about uh, inflation. I'm more worried about, uh, which I understand that. But then you start going to, uh, I'm more worried about 
all these social issues that that you know Ron DeSantis has learned the the grievance, you know, sort of the grievance yeah. wing of the Republican Party, and and a lot of a lot of people uh, are really uh, attracted to that uh, to sort of that those issues, and and uh, it doesn't matter what 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 part of, what demographic you're in that that sort of grievance culture and social issues seems to have a wide ranging appeal. Uh, and I, I think that also explains sort of the diversity in the people who are running. I mean, the Democratic Party has has been painted as as a, a, an extreme and radical party on a lot of these social issues, which, of course, is the great irony, uh, because uh, this Republican Party is the most radical party of our lifetimes. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on Hell and High Water, and we'll be back with more of Joe Scarborough, co-host of MSNBC's Morning Joe. Stay with us. nothing to do, by the way, with political correctness or being too woke. It's about fundamental values that my grandparents from Kansas taught me. Values I grew up with, values you grew up with, values we try to teach our kids, values we learn in churches and mosques and synagogues and temples. Honesty, fairness, opportunity, hard work, values that Josh Shapiro and John Spetterman stand for, values that Joe Biden stands for, values that were enshrined in our founding documents a few miles from here, a clarion call for freedom and equality that Philly's own Liberty Bell represents. That's what America stands for. So that was uh, Barack Obama, who has been uh, all over the place, uh, everywhere where there's a Democrat in jeopardy. Uh, down in Georgia, uh, with the Senate race and the gubernatorial race down there, uh, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Nevada, in Arizona, and then capping it all off with uh, that speech in, in Philadelphia uh, on Saturday, the last of his, uh, of his closing arguments uh, for specific candidates and for the Democratic Party. And, you know, we don't know. Uh, you know, come Tuesday, we'll we'll have some results, and maybe I keep saying Tuesday, but who knows when we'll finally get all of the final results in? Uh, but it could be a month before we know the ultimate results right. of all these elections. But in the end, in what all comes out in the wash, you know, who knows what Barack Obama's effect on this election will be? But uh, empirically speaking, but man, watching him go around from Georgia to Michigan to Wisconsin to Nevada to Arizona, and finally closing out in Pennsylvania. Uh, on on Saturday, uh, doing a big rally there uh, for for Fetterman and for Josh Shapiro. I mean, he just you know reminds you of like <laughs> just what kind of extraordinary the phrase you you we both like you know Pat Buchanan's phrase you know he's an extraordinary political athlete. I mean, just he's still he's out of the game. He right. hasn't he hasn't run for he hasn't run for anything since 2012. Joe, yeah. it's 10 years since Barack Obama had to run for anything, and 10 years later he's still better than everybody else. I mean, by like a by like a country mile, he's better than yeah. anybody practicing politics right now. And yeah. you watch, and you can, and you know, people can, they take the part, the the what, what he does well, and how he does it, and the humor, and the 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 folk, the the colloquialisms, and the the meter, and the pace, and all the stuff he does. Right? It's 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 pretty extraordinary. I I, I want to ask you to just talk about that 
and what it is, why it is you think, what makes Obama such an extraordinary political athlete? Because I then want to ask you about some of the other political athletes we've seen emerge in this cycle and who you think, if not, they're not at Barack Obama's level yet, but who's like, as you've seen them, you said, that Senate candidate, that Senate candidate, that gubernatorial candidate, those people have the kind of makings of a great political athlete if they're not there already. But so, but first start with Obama. Like, what is it that makes him, you know, I mean, I saw you, you were just like watching him on the show one day, we were playing clips and you were just, I had that look of delight on your face, just yeah. as, as admiration of seeing someone who just plays the game that well. He's just, you know, whether you agree with him about everything or not, you watch him and go, that guy's fucking good. Yeah, I mean, and, and unfortunately, as so many people that are running right now in the Democratic Party are, you know, they remind me of the 1962 Mets, where Casey Stengel asks, can't anybody around here play this, this game? game yeah. Obama can play the game. And the thing that Obama has that is actually perfectly aligned with what Democrats need to have in the age of Trump is the ability to mock the other side and, and, and frame it in a way where he's like, you know, he'll talk and talk about the issues that matter. And they go, and, and this guy that, that, that's right, can, can you believe? That guy actually said, fill in the blank. And he, he frames it in a way that makes everybody laugh and also makes them stop and makes a person at home stop and go, oh, shit, yeah. Wow, you know, he's right. That is kind of stupid, right? But I want you to do a thought experiment with me because I've done this thought experiment with other people before, too. And I think Obama's extraordinary. He is LeBron baby, as he famously said before 2004. But I've always said, let's do a thought experiment and let's put Obama against Trump in a debate. How long would that last? It would be over. It would be called in the first round. It would be over. Now, let's go back. Let's take another Democrat, Bill Clinton. How long would that last? It would not last long. Like Clinton would brutalize Donald Trump. And he'd do it sort of mockingly, but it also do it with all He would be. And now let's talk about the Republican who people thought was a bad debater, George W. Bush. You put George W. Bush next to Donald Trump, Trump would answer one question and Bush would look at him and go, and I'm supposed to be the stupid one. <laughs> you know, everybody would die laughing. And I say all of that to say, Maybe it's not that Trump is that good. Maybe it's that everybody around him right now is just so bad. And, and when you see Obama go out there, it's such a reminder that actually you can, you know, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. The thing I hear all the time is, you know, I, I, I always hear them, well, we can't talk about inflation because the democracy's it. Yeah, you can talk about inflation and democracy. We, we can't talk about crime because, you know, that. Yeah, you can actually talk about crime and January 6th and inflation. If you're good in gas prices, you can even wrap it all together in sort of this universal approach towards, towards why Democrats should win and why Republicans should be sent to the insane asylum if you're part of this MAGA group. And, and so what Obama does works especially well whether you're going up against Donald Trump or Kerry Lake. But you look at Kerry Lake, I mean, do, do everybody's saying 
this woman's going to be the next vice president for the Republicans. This woman is, is the most dangerous Republican. Does anybody really think that Carrie Lake would beat Josh Shapiro? Because I don't. I think yeah. Josh Shapiro, I think it would have been a TKO in the first round there as well. I think there's just candidate quality and Carrie Lake just happens to be running against somebody who's scared of her own shadow. That never, that never does well. So I think a lot of it has to do with candidate quality and Obama's got it and too many Democrats right now uh, that are running this year don't. This, the thing that Obama has, and again, you mentioned Josh Shapiro, and I want to hear you talk about him a little bit more, but the thing that he has, and he, you know, he did this interview with Pod Save America um, uh, right before this, he, he set out on the road, he kind of made his public return to, to politics for this cycle, and he used this, he had this phrase where he talked about how uh, Democrats had to stop being killjoys, buzzkills, buzzkills yeah. is right, so the Democrats too much buzzkills. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the thing you're pointing to is, that all of those guys, Bush, Clinton, and Obama, what they all had was an, uh, has a, in different, obviously in totally different ways, stylistically, Obama and Clinton, not at all the same, uh, you know, and George W. Bush different, but they all had a, they all had a, like a little bit of an element of, they look like they're having fun. Yeah. And it was okay to have fun. And it was okay for this to be fun. And they had mirth and kind of some sense of different, the highest sense of humor, but there, there was a joy to, you know, I don't want to go to Hubert Humphrey and the happy warrior thing, but there's a joy to the way they practice politics. And they made people feel a sense of possibility and a sense of like that it could be that the, this work that we have to do to make the country better could also be fun. And, and I think one of the things that's true is that like Trump in his way, and this is, will get everybody who listens to this podcast furious at me, but I'll say it anyway. Like fascism is fun. Like the, one of the appeals of fascism is fun because it's basically like, hey, we're going to take all the restraints off. You can do whatever the fuck you want. You can drink as much as you want. You can eat as many fucking candy bars as you want. You can treat people like shit. You can do whatever you want. All restraints are off. We won't judge you. Go. Who cares about democratic norms? Who cares about this? There's some, for some people, that sounds like fun. It's like liberty. Like you're just, you're allowed to basically, Trump is the ultimate, the ultimate get out of jail free card for no matter what you are, no matter what you do, no matter how much you lie, you cheat, you steal, Trump gives you the ability to feel okay about that because Trump can never judge you, right? And the thing about Democrats is that, and I think what Obama is getting at on some level is that a lot of people feel like what they get from the Democratic Party all the time is just scolding. You're not good enough. You're not using the right language. You have to say it this way. You're not living up, like that kind of preachy sort of right. scolding kind of quality uh, that, that, that Democrats have come to adopt increasingly. They're like the killjoy party. And- what you see in Obama is what it looks like to be a Democrat who's not in the killjoy party. Like he's yeah. the guy who, even as he's ripping someone's face off, makes you kind of like go, well, that's, that was, you know, that was, yeah. say, that's, that, he did that with a big smile on his face. And, and I, I just think that to me is part of the thing. It's not just candidate skill or rhetorical ability, but it's, it's like kind of the spirit of it. Well, like, yeah, have, it's, like, it's, it's a mindset. And, yeah. and you know, the thing is, and by the way, may I please yes, disassociate please. myself from my friends remark regarding fascism being fun. It's fun for losers. Well, uh, it's uh, fun for, yeah, no, no, I, I get you know what, what you're I mean? saying. I'm not, I'm I obviously not pro-fascist. I'm saying I think that's the appeal for <laughs> some people is that like, you think about Weimar Germany, man. It's like the thing was partly like, Hey, we get to have obviously for the for the for those who were who were in the the ruling class and not the those who got were into the boot. But for some people, why does it become appealing? Why does a country become a fascist country? It becomes right. appealing because people are they they become emboldened, and empowered, and the the in the exercise of fascism, they start to see it as 
as fun is a, a is a minimization of it, but there's a there's a license that you're given. There's a license that you're given because because at the root of fascism is the myth, right. the myth of of our great heritage that we had, and somebody took it away from us. They took away our heritage. They took away our birthright. They took away our great history. They, are, they took away our civilization. And now we can do whatever we want to do to these political opponents to get it back. That is the big fucking lie right. that, 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 that lies at the heart of, of fascism. I will say what, what Obama is especially, especially great at doing is, is pushing back against the catastrophizing that has come to define the Democratic Party since Trump came on the stage, that that has come to define progressive since he's come on the stage, that's come to define uh, so many people uh, since he's come on the stage. And um, I I will just say, I I know, I actually know, know a liberal slash progressive pretty well. And when, <laughs> when, when I, when you're talking, something, you're talking about, you're talking about, I'm talking about mommy. I don't know. But when this person is about to go on the air and they're about to act shocked yeah. and they're about to act, you know, catastrophize it. I say, don't let them see that. You can't let them see that you're shocked by what you're doing. You know, a, a strong and hearty fuck you is much better than, oh my God, I can't believe. No, that's the thing. You're back on your heels. You're shocked. Trump, like Putin, is a disruptor, right? They can't win. They cannot win uh, by the rules, by, right. by the set established rules. So they have to constantly disrupt. They have to constantly shock. They have to constantly make people go, oh, my God, they're destroying the Constitution. They are. But again, as Obama, as, as President Obama has said, when you go about it, don't go about it as a killjoy. Go about it, you know, be strong, uh, but at the same time, kind of poke them and, and, and prod them and, 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 and mock them at the same time. I'll say something else that Barack Obama is, has done extremely well. The Democrat, Democrats should listen to him on. And again, you look at the wokeness, which I know you're not supposed to say in front of progressives because... It triggers them. What is wokeness? There's no such thing as wokeness. Wokeness is what the fuck 80% of Americans think wokeness is, and they don't like it. Um, Barack Obama has been very good uh, on this issue, saying, listen, we're not canceling anybody. That's not a good idea. We want everybody to feel free to come in and have the debate. Doesn't matter where they're from. Doesn't matter if they're man or woman. Doesn't matter what the color of their skin is. Let's have the debate. Let's basically he's pushing back against illiberalism on the left and on the right, and um, you know says you know forget the nasty tweet. Let's let's try to figure these issues out. Let's try to understand that that's a that's a great message. I I, I think for Democrats it's a great message that 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 would appeal. Uh, more to swing voters and more to independents because I do think this killjoy uh, thing that that, that uh, President Obama is talking about I do th- I do think it's I th- do think it actually 
is an issue with 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 Americans. It is an issue with swing voters um, that, that Democrats are always catastrophizing. They're always going on TV talking about how the end is near. That's another thing I've, I've said to people on the show before. You can't predict that locusts are going to descend from the heavens and eat the flesh off of every American <laughs> every week because six months into it, they're going to look down and say, wait a second. My, my, my flesh is still attached to my, my flesh is my still bones. attached to yeah. my bones. And so we've just, listen, I, and by the way, I'm guilty of that as well. You know, I, I was shocked uh, and, and remain shocked by what Donald Trump does uh, and what he has done. Uh, the breaching of the constitutional norms, the fact that the guy would love to be an authoritarian, the fact that, 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 that he'd love to be an authoritarian leader of this country. We've just got to listen to Barack Obama and others and figure out a smarter way to do this. Well, and, that and I, By the way, the we is if anybody who's listening is like me and believes that Donald Trump poses a direct threat to American democracy, which I do. Well, and this is the thing, and I'll, we can talk a little bit about Shapiro and a couple others in a second, but it is the thing about Obama, right? Obama's like just as, it, it, it's this, it's, there's this very thin line between catastrophizing and being clear-eyed about the nature of the problem, right? You, 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 you know, there's, there's Pollyannas on one side who are like, oh, no, no, there's no big deal. You know, the January 6th was no big deal. Who cares about the Secretary of State in Arizona? Like, that doesn't matter. And then there's catastrophizers who think that everything's about to completely unravel at any moment and those locusts are about to eat the flesh or, uh, off of your body. Right. In the next. And then there's Obama who's kind of like, we have a, a very serious acute threat to the future of American democracy here. And the answer to it is to meet it with strength and energy and, and, and determination and, and go, you know, and we can, we can, we can beat back this threat. It's eminently, eminently winnable, but we have to take it seriously, but we also have to not like throw up our hands and go, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not closing your eyes to it, pretending like the problem's not there. It's like, what's the attitude with which you decide to address the problem? and, and, And I love what you just said. I mean, it needs to be approached with strength, with energy, and I say with optimism. You know, I, I, I've spent much of my adult life as a grief counselor. I don't know if you knew that or not. A political grief counselor telling people that everything was going to be okay. That there's another election in two years. Keep your head down. And in the words of, 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 um, of Winston Churchill, uh, something along the lines of, of never, never, never flinch, never despair, uh, never yeah. wary, whatever he said. He said... If he didn't say it, I said it, uh, and, and I and that's that really is that's just so critical, um, and and the, ca- the catastrophizing has to go, and again, approach these things with strength, uh, with energy, with focus, with optimism. That makes a huge difference. What is that? This it's the never give in speech, right? Never give in, never give in, never, never, never. Uh, yeah, that's never, the, uh, never give in, never give up. Here it is. Never flinch. Never worry, never despair. Right. That's the end of it. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Is so Churchill? Churchill's big on the. Uh, he's got a lot of a uh, lot of nevers. You know, don't, a lot don't of do, nevers. Don't do exactly. any of those things. Yeah. So so Josh Shapiro, right? Who was uh-huh. on the show last week? Uh, Tim Ryan on the show last week. Josh Shapiro is going to win for sure, uh, unless like you know, there's a Martian invasion between now and uh, and when this uh, podcast appears. Uh, you know, so that's going to be a bright spot on on Tuesday. Big big win against an outright election. A denier and insurrectionist himself, uh, Doug Mastriano. Uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with Tim Ryan, but he was impressive on on your oh, right. on, on your area. Really good, yeah. Um, 
You know, and you think back a little further to another another young talent that you and Mika and I uh, all like were super impressed with from back in the spring. And that was, you know, this this young uh, Michigan State Senator, uh, Mallory McMorrow, who, you know, gave one very powerful speech uh, that it kind of came out of nowhere and gave this speech, suddenly kind of vaulted herself into the consciousness of the national right. political class. Uh, let's let's actually let's take a quick listen to that. Let's let's hear a little bit of the speech that Mallory McMorrow gave uh, back in the spring uh, that provoked so much uh, commentary and got her onto shows like Morning Joe. Uh, just take a listen to her, and we'll we'll talk about her a little bit more on the other side. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. So that's just one little taste of Mallory McMorrow. Um, and I got to say, you know, uh, you got to listen to that whole speech to really get the full impact of it. But right. uh, that is someone, you know, one example of someone who uh, when uh, they gave a uh, big, a big turn, kind of on the big stage, where a lot of people in the Democratic Party said, "Okay, you know, that's what the future uh, for our party could look like." Uh, but that's just one example, and so, so Joe, I'm curious as to you know whether there are other candidates who, uh, when you saw them uh, out on the campaign trail this season, or in some particular star is born kind of moment, where you thought, you know, uh, this person's not Barack Obama yet, but uh, they could. Uh, they have the five tools. They know how to play the game, how it should be played. And these people have the markings of someone who could really lead, uh, not just the Democratic Party, but either party for that matter. You know, the sort of people who you look at and say, that is a high-level political athlete. I, 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 I'm going to start with actually uh, Mallory McMorrow. And, and the thing I love about her is uh, she's a fighter. And, and she takes it to... I, I actually, even when I was a Republican... I loved Democratic fighters. That's, uh, that's when Bobby Kennedy was my hero. I love Bobby Kennedy. He was a fighter. Uh, Mario Cuomo was a fighter. Uh, but uh, but Mallory McMurrow is a fighter. And, and, and here's, here's the thing I really love about her is she, she's a fighter. She's also a suburban mom. She's a self-identified Christian. She can get on the floor and say, you know what? Don't quote Jesus to me, okay? Thank you very much. And don't talk about how they're coming for our children. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a suburban housewife. I'm a suburban mom. Uh, and, and basically goes on to politely say, fuck you, right? And by the way, you're not even looking at me while I'm talking to you because you're such a pathetic piece of shit. She said it much better than I did, which is why I think she's a great political athlete. But I just love that. That's what I would love to see in Democrats that are interested in, in pushing back on Trumpism and pushing, pushing, back, on, um, pushing back on this, this sort of, well, I'll just say it, I think it's fascist. People can be offended when, when, when I call it fascism, I think it's fascism, this sort of fascist trend in, in wings of, uh, a certain wing of the Republican Party. And Josh Shapiro is just, you know, he's tough, he's strong, He's competent. He knows how to hit all the issues. You know, I remember I remember listening to uh, Glenn Youngkin, uh, not when he was mocking Nancy Pelosi's uh, uh, hmm. husband, garbage. Yeah, uh, but 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 I remember listening to him uh, when he was running against our buddy Terry, and he inflation was just starting to take off, 
and he was talking about a tax cut uh, to make people's grocery bill a little bit less. And I thought, it's pretty smart. That means at least you're focused on it. Maybe it will make a huge difference, but people, they like hearing that. They like political candidates who understand where they are. That's what Shapiro did. When, when we had Shapiro on the show the other day, and he was talking about uh, tax cuts for small businesses. This is what I think Democrats need to do. And I know everybody's sitting there going, what does the former right-wing Republican freak think Democrats need to do? Well, this is what you need to do. Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> they need to do what Josh Shapiro did. You can do two things at once. They need to be pro-small business. They need to be aggressively small business. They need to, they need to do whatever they can to help small business owners and entrepreneurs, right? And at the same time, they can demand justice, social justice, uh, economic justice. Uh, they, they, they can hold multinational corporations accountable. They can make sure that billionaires actually pay their fair share. They can make sure that this massive wealth uh, disparity uh, that has grown, not because the poor have gotten poor, but because the rich have gotten so much richer, uh, is, is, is taken care of in a way that's far more effective than Richie Neal's uh, uh, tax plan that came out of the Ways and Means Committee that didn't touch carried interest, uh, that, that again focused on taxing income instead of taxing capital, taxing people who actually work their asses off instead of taxing people who just shuffle paper around and, and have to pay a much lower tax rate. That's what I think... Democrats need to do, and I suspect Shapiro feels the same way, because when I asked him, what can you do to help on inflation? He started by talking about small business owners. We need a, we need a tax cut for small business owners. And I was like, praise Jesus. All right, he doesn't sound like a Democrat. That's a good one, because I'm sure he's also gonna make sure multinational corporations don't get away with, with economic murder. Um, and then he moved on and he talked about helping out on energy, uh, helping out on groceries. And, and so he, he actually, he was, I love the guy because he's strong, he seems very competent, and he also seems to understand uh, how to play in, in areas that Republicans usually uh, uh, dominate. And I, I just think that's the key for Democrats. They need to figure out where they can start making inroads on, on issues that, that Republicans have just dominated for too long. All right, we're going to take one more quick break, and we'll be right back with Morning Joe Scarborough, the man, the myth, the legend, right here on Hell and High Water. I ran twice. I won twice and did much better the second time than I did the first, getting millions more votes in 2020 than I got in 2016, and likewise, getting more votes than any sitting president in the history of our country by far. And now, in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? Very, very, very probably. So uh, we're back with Joe Scarborough here on Hell and I Water. And that was, of course, uh, you know, the he who shall not be named. Uh, but, you know, he's kind of like the the elephant in the room. Although, you know, you could say something more yeah. 
unflattering than elephants. Some people would say, you know, fat ass orangutan. That's, that's not nice to say. Well, um, you know. What about Trump? Well, think about this. I think, you know, we saw him a lot in the last few days of this election. He suddenly was out again. You know, he did doing mm-hmm. events at the end with, uh, with J.D. Vance uh, uh, on the eve of the election, uh, you know, with Dr. Oz on the eve of the election, yeah. uh, with, uh, with, with these various candidates, he decided to go out and, and, uh, and, and make him, you know, in the home stretch, especially candidates that he endorsed, you know, he, the right. candidates that he felt like he had a lot invested in. Prior to that, Joe, I want to ask you whether you're as struck by this as I am. It's something I don't think we've ever, we've discussed really on the, on the show, um, interestingly, like, I think there's only one period of time when Donald Trump was ever a, a, a character of political, exercised political discipline. The fall of 2016, when, you know, when things started breaking his way, the Comey letter, all that stuff yeah. happened. Suddenly Trump found discipline. He liked it. He talked about trade. He talked about jobs. He talked about incomes. He talked about, he talked about China. He talked about, the, about immigration. He, he didn't, he didn't get it. After having gotten himself in all kinds of trouble in 2016, he suddenly found discipline for the final, like two weeks of the election. He basically didn't make uh, bad news cycles for himself on the basis of his personal indiscipline and like, you know, making fun of uh, right. you know, re- reporters or women or all the stuff that he got in trouble for. Right. That period. Right. His entire presidency, total political indiscipline. His post-presidency, total political indiscipline. And then in this fall, again, in the wake of all the Mar-a-Lago raid uh, and the discussion of whether he'd be indicted, all of that, he went really dark for most of of October, the last month of this cycle. And, you know, there's a million ways Trump could have made himself the dominant figure in the news cycle, right? He could have announced he was running for president again at the beginning of October. He could have, you know... He just decided he, for this only the second time ever, I think he decided to behave in a, a politically disciplined way because he he I, I got, apparently got the message from Republicans who said it's not good for us when you're front and center, buddy. And so I'm curious what you think about that. And and of course the reason why I ask is it's now as we've gotten closer and closer to election day, he suddenly you know is starting to get out there again, and we now are told he's going to run. He's going to announce his run for re-election on November 14th, Monday, next Monday. Um, and, and so Trump, it's like he's, he was disciplined for only the second time ever for the one month before the election, but he's like bursting at the seams. He wants to get back out there on the field. And there's obviously a lot to say about wh- why he's doing what he's doing and the Garland question, independent counsel, possible indictment, all of that. It seems like it's going to dominate our conversation for the next couple months again. Yeah. So I, off, I open the floor to you on topic of Trump, and then we can drill down on some specific things. I think you're right. Uh, the, the last 10 days of the election after the Comey letter, he showed, so w- the one time he showed discipline uh, because he understood if he stayed out of the way, he could, uh, he could actually win the race. I, I thought uh, his silence actually over the past month had more to do with, with all of the legal troubles that were swirling around him. Every time he did an interview, uh, he got in trouble. Right. Every, time, uh, every time he, he opened his mouth, uh, you heard another way that he had he had heard his case. Uh, lawyers would be warning him uh, that that he was really making things much worse on himself. Uh, so I, I think that had a lot to do with it. I'm not exactly sure why he would come out and announce uh, that he was going to run for president on November 14th, because that would be the last thing that Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy would want him to do. Because of course it draws attention to Donald Trump, but. That's Donald Trump. So maybe, maybe he thinks you know it's late enough in the cycle that he can do that without causing any negative impact on Republicans. I'm not exactly sure, but I've been wrong on Trump uh, 
Several times. <laughs> ever, ever since. You know, I was right when I said he could win the Republican nomination. I've been wrong about him ever since. And, and I, so let me just say uh, what my opinion is, which means the opposite will probably happen. I just don't think he can ever win again, uh, win the general election again. I think those suburban voters that turned on him aren't going to go back to him. But right. We'll see. But that's but, but what do you imagine happening now? Like we've basically been in a state of, state of you're, I think you're right that some of his political, what I refer to as his political discipline and staying out of the news in, in October of this election cycle um, is driven by uh, concerns about his legal liability. So in that case, political discipline was the, his legal liability and potential legal, uh, potential legal liability was the father to, uh, a pl helpful political discipline from the standpoint of other Republicans who were like really happy to see Donald Trump not uh, dominating headlines for that last month. Um, but we're going to now, we've been in suspended animation because Garland basically, we were told, uh, so it was like, I don't, I'm not going to do an indictment before election day. But now election day is going to be in the, in the rearview mirror. And a lot of people think that on, on the Mar-a-Lago case, the classified documents case, there's an open and shut indictment to be brought. That doesn't even get yet to the 1-6 cases, which many people mm -hmm. also think there's a very strong case for an indictment on. You know, or Georgia, or, yeah. What, and Georgia, right? So, like, what are you anticipating? You know, it's, it feels to me like the election day is going to, be in, is going to pass. And there's a bunch of big things that we're waiting for. What is Garland going to do? Trump, you know, apparently thinks it's in his interest regardless of the politics in the midterms, he thinks it's in his interest to be running for president again. Maybe he thinks that gives himself some legal buffer against Garland. You know, there is this discussion now about an independent counsel if Trump runs again, that, that, that the Justice Department might appoint uh, an, an independent counsel. What are, you, what are you looking, when you look down the, uh, uh, down the highway here and, and we know that these things are all hovering out there, what do you imagine this period is going to be like when the ultimate disposition, like what happens to Trump? Is he going to get indicted? Is he going to go to jail? Is he going to run for president again? Could he potentially win? You know he's going to clear the field if he does announce that he's running for president. There are a lot of Republicans who are like, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis is going to run against Donald Trump? I don't know. I don't think, maybe not. Maybe you think so. I don't know. But what do you imagine like, happening as we go forward? Because this is going to be the big storyline. Oh yeah. Again, it's just I'm sorry. Chaos. It looks like you. I think you. But I think you basically did not want to confront this reality that you guys I, were no, talking about I Donald really, Trump every day. Yeah. You're like, this is. I see on your look on your face, like, oh shit. Heilman's reminding me of the fact that like this is what we're going to be talking about for the next month yeah. and a half, or two months, or six months, or whatever. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be chaos. I think. I think. Uh, who knows? Maybe. Maybe Trump looked at Netanyahu getting reelected, uh, getting back into power, despite uh, the fact that he has some prosecutors chasing him, and maybe he thinks it's a better move for him. Um, I think most of what he's doing uh, probably does have to do with what he thinks puts him in the best position uh, in his legal cases. Because you know he's he's not a dumb guy. I mean he he certainly he's certainly understands when he's cornered and he understands he's in trouble in Georgia. He understands you know, the Supreme Court's ruled that Lindsey has to testify. They're not gonna, they're not going to do him any favors. The Supreme Court and that case and the Georgia case where he's on tape, he's busted. A Republican Secretary of State has the smoking gun that he was trying to steal the election in Georgia. So um, Merrick Garland's getting dead to center on the documents cases. It doesn't really matter whether Americans give a damn about it or not. The law is the law. He's in trouble. If I had done that, if, um, if, if, oh, I don't know, a former CIA director had done that, if a former uh, national security advisor named Sandy Berger had done that, you know, they would be charged. They would be prosecuted. He's going to be charged and prosecuted because what he's done is 
is much worse than what Sandy Berger or Deutsch or, or what uh, General Petraeus did. Um, and I don't know what that does with the Republican Party. Uh, maybe that maybe they they want a felon uh, as their nominee. Uh, they don't seem to have. They certainly have not had any problems with with forgiving Donald Trump for everything that he's done. Uh, it's very clear that he he was responsible for the riot on January the sixth. And yet I I have people very close to me who will still tell you that there was much ado about nothing and. Mike Pence was never in danger. That it's all the 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 the, the mainstream media that, that's that's pushing that. So I suspect a good a good chunk of the base will will try to forgive him um, and and try to move on with him. But at the end, I think it's going to be too much. Will he end up in jail? I mean, he should end up in jail. I'm not exactly sure what kind of deal he can strike. But if uh, if he's charged in Georgia, if he indicted and charged in Georgia, and and you know, and the documents case, and, and of itself, you're right. We haven't even gotten to January 6. Everybody else is going to jail for that. I suspect at the end of the day, they're gonna somebody's gonna figure out how he's at the center of a conspiracy there. I'm listening to all those sirens. They keep thinking. Oh, like, I swear I, to God, I've heard it's them throughout. Yeah. Where do you, where do you guys? Where, where's this apartment you're sitting in? Are you like? Are you are you inside a police department? Uh, it, a police it, precinct? It, a, it, a firehouse? It, just, it never stops. It's just like it's. You know, well, you know where I, I've I've lived in the. Past. I, I, I know. I, I, I just I went, there I, against him. They never stop. They never stop. I, I do know where it's you live. I do know where you live. I just didn't really realize that there was that, but there was that much siren action, man. I feel like it they're coming stops. to take you away. You're about to get like uh It's unbelievable. It's crazy. Hey, so here's my my question. Here's a good long term question for you, right? You were a Republican mm-hmm. for a long time, right? Um, and now you're not, right? So you've given all these reasons why you left the Republican Party, and you know, we don't know as we sit here right now. It's possible the slate of election deniers will win in Arizona, and that'll be like a really fucked up situation. It's possible that we'll have yeah. election deniers in important positions all over the country, and that's the most vivid thing of what's what happened in the Republican Party that made it impossible for you to stay in it, right? Mm-hmm. You're also an optimist, and you right. believe in you believe in the ability for things to change and and and, right. and 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 get better. Is there a world where you could imagine the Republican Party becoming a party again that you would want to be part of? No. Like, is that, a, is that a thing a thing that you ever think to yourself, maybe no. if the following things happen, why? No. Why no. are you so emphatic about that? I, I'm, I, you know, I am, a, uh, I am a Southern Baptist at heart. I'm still an evangelical at heart in that, uh, even though, uh, don't even get me started about that. Um, I believe in grace and I believe in forgiveness um, when it comes to people. I think, though, that the Republican Party is an institution uh, has committed so many unforgivable sins. I think it's irredeemable as a party, as a political. There are great people in the party that I like yeah. very much. I think they're great people uh, who who still believe in a lot of the the issues uh, that that I believe in. Uh, I've been heartened that Republicans have stood shoulder to shoulder with President Biden when it comes to Ukraine, that may change now, but mm. they, they certainly have done that. There, there, there were enough to pass a, a number of bipartisan bills, so, you know, but, but as far as the party itself, um, I, I mean, I, I, I go back to early December of, uh, of 2015 when I knew that uh, it was heading in a direction that, that, uh, that, uh, that I couldn't follow. And, that was when Donald Trump came out uh, talking about the Muslim registry. Right. Uh, it lifted straight 
from Germany, 1933. And his poll number shot up. uh, And um, and he he realized that he could he could play to that. And so I'm not exactly sure uh, where the Republican Party went. I will tell you uh, that. you, you, you talk to a lot of old line liberals, they'll say, well, the Republican Party's always been that way, Joe. Your party's always been that way. My, my party wasn't that way. I mean, my side of the party wasn't that way. Um, but, um, but I certainly can look back over the past 50, 60, 70 years and see how it, it, it's grown into what it is right now. And, and, and that party's irredeemable. Uh, it uses race. Uh, it, 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 is, it is continued to vote for a man who loathes constitutional norms, who loathes Madisonian democracy. And people ask, why do I say Madisonian democracy? Because Madisonian democracy was built on checks and balances. And, and, and yeah. that, that's the genius of the Constitution. Uh, and and so, so Donald Trump loathes anybody that challenges him or checks his power. Uh, and the Republican Party's fine with that. The Republican Party's fine with with this guy when he was president of the United States two weeks before the election, ordering his attorney general to arrest his political opponent and their family. And they're still supporting him. So, uh, no, I've got, so I've, no, got, I've got no use for him. So no Republican Party in Joe Scarborough's future. Is there any chance you'll ever run again for office? Um, uh, yeah, I could. I don't know. I don't know when or why or how, but I could. But the, I'm being mischievous. I'm being mischievous. I know you're not. I know there's no. The, there's, not, a, I say there's, there's, all, there's only one. There's problem no impending. With that. No impending. Uh, no, the only problem with that is uh, uh, my wife won't let me. So. Well, I was going to say what party. And also, like you know, you have a lot of friends who are Democrats now, but you know, given the Democratic Party the way it is now, it's not like there'd be a lot of like open arms for Joe Scarborough. You'd have to find a way to run in, a, in an interesting. I mean, I. You know, it would be really good for you if there were actually a viable way to run for anything in this country as an independent, because you really are more of an independent than you are a Democrat or, or certainly a Republican for the reasons you just said. It's like you're, 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 you're heterodox. You know, you contain multitudes. You're like, you're, you're I, not, I, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, a, you're not comfortable within the woke Democratic Party as it currently exists right, um, and right. what's required. And again, there are some people who can, who can skip, skip, slip those bonds, but it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I, you know, I feel like there's still one more run left in you, Joe. That's what you I know, the thing I, is, I, even when I was uh, supposedly this hard right Republican, um, I'd always have people on the floor come up to me going, I just can't figure out how you vote on human yeah. rights, <laughs> yeah. on civil rights. On the environment, I just can't figure it out. You don't, you don't follow straight. So you're right, but 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 I, I've got to say right now, for me, this is just for me. Um, right now, I, I'm an independent, but uh, I remember in 2006, I voted a straight Democratic ticket uh, because uh, I was so disgusted with where the Republican Party was in 06 uh, because. Uh, of Iraq because of deficit spending, <clears throat> and that's where I am again. I mean, I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote for 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 Democrats uh, right now. I don't agree with with uh, with a, a lot in the Democratic Party, uh, but at the same time, <laughs> they're they're fighting an anti-democratic uh, uh, opponent, and so so this is the easiest. Uh, this year is going to be the easiest 
year for me. Uh, when it, it, it's, it's time to cast the votes, it's going to be a straight Democratic line. And uh, so there you have it. Um, and what, what more uh, illustrative example of the state of our current politics could you find than, than Joe Scarborough, uh, a man uh, once synonymous with uh, the Newt Gingrich revolutionaries in the House of Representatives uh, way back when, saying that he is not just uh, an independent now, but someone who is, at least in this moment, prepared to vote uh, for Democrats up and down the ticket, uh, straight on the ballot. I mean, that, you know, if that, if that doesn't say it all, I don't know what does. Joe, thank you for spending some time on this, on this Sunday afternoon. Uh, Joe Scarborough, the one and only. I've enjoyed it. All right. Thank you, Joe. Helen Highwater is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Joe Scarborough, he of Morning Joe on MSNBC. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Helen Highwater and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is co-creator of Helen Highwater. Amr Sultan produced and engineered this episode. Zoya Soroy is our researcher and Marshall Eisen, the man, the myth, the legend, the truth, the light, the heat. He's our executive producer.